welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Business Network Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, you know you're in the right place. This is our second live show today, so just stick around. We even have more. The buzz on the street today You know the old phrase, fish or cut bait, we say fish. What are we talking about? Well, if you're a small to medium-sized company, it is daunting, meaning what a challenge, to have to compete with larger suppliers and their healthy marketing budgets, their established brand awareness, their nationwide presence, their global market presence, presence, everything. They're there, they're out there, they are established. And you may be new, or you just may be staying in the SME, small to mid-sized space, but they're out there and you cannot ignore them. We're going to tell you don't throw in the towel yet. You may be disappointed, you may be overworked, but there may be a way to get where you need to go. Let's talk about business networks today. Business networks combined with the shift toward online lead generation tools can help enable your company to grow and compete globally with the big kids. That's the big girls, the big boys, and whoever else is in the family. The question on the table is how. What tools can you use? What strategies? What do you need to learn about right now? What can you learn about today that will help you refocus, reset, and get that energy and that smart strategy to help you keep going and become a winner? That's why you started business in the first place place, isn't it? We have a panel of three experts who have been there, done that. They're doing it. They're smart and they know what they're talking about. First up, I'm very pleased to welcome David Favro, F-A-V-R-O. He is the e-procurement sales manager for National Business Furniture. And David has sent me an interesting quote. Uh, it's from or about Aesop's Fables, The Tortoise and the Hare. Let me just read a drop here. The Tortoise and the Hare is one of Aesop's or Aesop's Fables, if you prefer, and it's number 226 what's called the Perry Index of Fables. It's about a race between unequal partners. Now, that's key to our show today, unequal partners. It has varying interpretations, but basically the story concerns a hare, that's a rabbit for those of you who don't know the word, who ridicules a slow-moving tortoise. Tired of the rabbit's boastful behavior, the tortoise challenges him to a race. The rabbit, or hare, soon leaves the tortoise behind and confident of winning. Ah, oh, he takes a snooze midway through the race. When he wakes up, bingo, his competitor crawling slowly but steadily, has arrived at the finish line before him. Let's leave it there. Here is the quote David has selected. If you work slowly but constantly, you will succeed better than if you work fast for a short while and do not continue. David Favreau, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Talk to me. Are you a big follower of Aesop? You call it Aesop's or Aesop's? I know, tomato, tomato. How do you pronounce it? I grew up calling it Aesop's Fable back in the early 70s in elementary school. Now we know a lot more about you. So talk to me. Are you a big follower of the fables? And and how come you picked this for our topic today? I think it's a great fit, but I'd like to hear in your words. Well, I picked this one specifically because it related to our company and how we got into an e-commerce technology. Um, You know, as a company, we've chosen not to jump at every new opportunity that comes, but sometimes we're, we're compelled to to move into certain areas, and in this particular case, e- e-technom- e-commerce technology drove us there, 
And so we got in and began to explore things methodically and carefully and recognize it was a way for us to grow our business and give us greater exposure. And we've had good success along the way, but it's not because we've had big giant bombs we set off to, to, to capture lots of people. It's a matter of just going step-by-step step, methodically, uh, just as we did our own business uh, started back in 1975. So mm-hmm. it's just been a proven philosophy for, for me and my own life, as well as through the company that I work for, and has helped us kind of get to the goals that we've had and, and reach them. And slow and steady wins the race. Is that what we're going to say here? That's what we're going to say. You know what? We could even say smart, slow, and steady. How do you like that extra word in there, David? Smart's probably better um, because you've got to do business in a smart way, and using e-commerce technology is a smarter way to do business than, than the traditional way, whatever that Thank might you. be for your company. That's right, and that's what we're going to help our listeners determine today. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to meet you. And now let's go to our second panelist. He is Ken Redler, Chief Technology Officer and a partner at a company called C-Subs. I'll spell that, lowercase c, capital S, lowercase u-b-s, C-Subs. And he has sent me a quote from John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie in Search of America. Anybody scratching their head? We may have some young ones out there, Ken, who don't know about this John Steinbeck Wrote Travels with Charlie in Search of America as a travelogue written by him talking about a 1960 road trip around the U.S. made by Steinbeck in the company of his standard poodle, Charlie. He tells of traveling throughout the U.S. in a specially made camper he named I think it's Rocinante after Don Quixote's horse. His travels start here on Long Island, right where I am right now, and roughly follow the outer border of the U.S. from Maine across to the Pacific Northwest, down to his native Salinas Valley in California, across to Texas, up through the Deep South, and back to New York. It was over 10,000 miles. And there's a side note here. According to Tom Steinbeck, his oldest son, the real reason that Steinbeck knew he was dying and he wanted to see his country one last time. I'm not going to cry, but I feel like it. So here is the quote. I'm going to read the long version, and then we'll talk about a little piece of it. Once a journey is designed, equipped, and put in process, a new factor enters and takes over. A trip, a safari, an exploration is an entity different from all other journeys. It has personality, temperament, individuality, uniqueness. A journey is a person in itself. No two are alike. And all plans, safeguard, policing, and coercion, are fruitless. And here's the, the core of the quote. We find after years of struggle that we do not take a trip. A trip takes us. Tour masters, schedules, reservations, brass, bound, and inevitable, dash themselves to wreckage on the personality of the trip. John Steinbeck. Ken Redler, welcome. Very interesting passage. Talk to me. Thanks, Bonnie. And first of all, I don't know how old you think I am, but uh, I certainly didn't experience uh, Steinbeck in real time, but thank you for that. Um, But I was an English major, so uh, as an English major, I've always loved this quote. Um, First of all, I I love travel, so I I think this quote really captures the essence of what it's like to travel well. Um, So when when you're traveling, you, you usually encounter a certain kind of a uh, fellow traveler who, who has it all planned out, has all the itineraries and bus schedules and uh, pickup schedules all set and uh, knows when a tour is going to start and, and who's going to be giving it. But the farther you go off that path, the less that all tends to work out. And it, mm-hmm. it kind of ends up that the most interesting trips are the ones where you do go off that path. Um, I was on a trip in Peru. Uh, I was in Cusco and I had to be at a 
tour pickup location at a particular place at a particular time. Uh, I didn't really know my way around that well, but I thought that I would kind of take a shortcut. Uh, and this is a city on a big hill, so I, I, I figured I could sort of geographically figure out how to get to where I was going. So I, I was going to cut the corner. So I went down and I was walking and uh, it was getting, uh, I was going farther and farther down the hill and becoming alarmed. And before long, I ended up in the central market in Peru and I was looking at uh, tables covered with you know, hacked off animal snouts and so forth. Oh, uh, so it was oh. certainly not exactly what I had intended to do for that day, but it turned out to be very interesting uh, and one of the more memorable parts of my trip. Um, so I found that this is also, believe it or not, a good philosophy for managing projects, integration mm-hmm. projects, and especially as a small company. Um, because uh, with a small, when you're small, you're not really fully driving the process. So the management of these projects is all about sort of letting go and accommodating and iterating and going with the flow uh, and kind of experiencing the trip uh, as it goes along. Thank you, Ken. Very interesting. And by the way, uh, I just want to clarify, when I said those of you out there may not remember, I think most of our audience, and we have an audience last year, Ken, of over 200,000 listeners live and and on demand, and over 1,000 identifiable geos around the world. And I'm betting most of them are way too young for Steinbeck. And I'm betting, looking at your picture, you are too. So I didn't want you to misunderstand. I, Thank you I'm the one, My dear, I'm the one who was around when Steinbeck was making his journey in 19- 1960. So, Grandma here, that's cool beans. We're, we're cool beans these days. So, I just wanted to let you know, I was speaking in general to the audience uh, because I, you know, I explain a lot of the quotes, the sources in detail because I'm sure that some of these have just never come across the desk or the online research of most of our listeners. And I want to make sure they know that these are very well-founded and well-sourced quotes. So, there you go, Ken. Thanks for that very much. Good words to live by. And now I'd like to introduce our third panelist. She is Ann Kramer. She is the president and CEO of Ergo Works. That's two words. And she has sent me a wonderful quote from Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell lived in 1904 to 1987. He was an American mythologist, writer, and lecturer known best for his work in comparative mythology and comparative religion. And uh, interestingly enough, I will quote the one that Ann selected in a moment. But Ann, most interesting to me was that Campbell was a professor at Sarah Lawrence College, and he married one of his students, dancer-choreographer Jean Erdman, and they lived, they were married for 49 years and shared a two- two-room apartment in Greenwich Village, and uh, yes, they lived, they traveled all over the world, but I am an alumna of Sarah Lawrence, so this particularly oh. caught my, and many of the professors there married their students, so mm. Wait, many? I read that, I read that, and I said, yeah, that's about what it was when I was there, but what's, he was there the way, be- exactly? I don't know, but uh, but they married in 1939, now that, Ken Redler, is way before my time, so I don't claim yeah, any yeah. knowledge of that, but it was interesting, here's the quote that Anne has selected in the first three words you're all going to recognize follow your bliss that's what he's most famous for follow your bliss and the universe will open doors for you where there were only walls ann kramer long introduction how are you ann i'm great thanks for having me here today we are delighted talk to me are you a follower of mr campbell's uh, I enjoy his show. I w- watched on uh, PBS Bill Moyers and the Joseph Campbell series, and I was just um, enchanted and entranced by it because it just touched the core of human- what makes us human. And um, when you touch into that, it just kind of reminds you and makes you ask yourself, why are we here and what's our purpose in life? 
and uh, that's what it's all about. Kind of is. Follow your bliss. It sounds so beautiful and poetic, and, and it sounds so unbusinesslike because business tends to be so much colder and more analytical. So tell me something. When you founded ErgoWorks, were you following your bliss, Anne? I was. In fact, I uh, quit my job after seven years of working in architecture and just quit because I knew that wasn't what I needed to be doing. And I decided to just um, bootstrap a business and just start from nothing. And I figured it wasn't risky, as everyone had said, how can you do that? And to me, it had less risk because if I didn't do it, I would be miserable living and working in a job nine to five that just didn't um, enrich my life. And I figured if it didn't work, I could always go back and get a job. So to me, <laughs> it was risk-free, not fraught with risk. And um, the quote for me very much relates to running a business because you know we're, every business is here to serve people and we're here to help people in some way. And if we can focus on what our values are and what we care about, we can make the life better for our customers and they can't help but respond to that. <clears throat> and the energy that comes out of that passion is contagious and it's infectious and our customers can't help but catch it. And if they catch it, they'll spread it. So I believe in a customer-centric approach to building a business and to improve our customers' experience, and that will keep the business thriving. You can't help but thrive if you're serving your customers' needs. Um, Thank you, Following your bliss is more than just what makes you happy. It means building a business around a core set of values. Great quote and, and great point. And I want to ask you, when I opened, I said, fish or cut bait, question mark, fish, and talked about also don't throw in the towel yet. Did you have those moments when you were building your company when you said, I don't know, this is awfully hard. The big kids are playing in a bigger sandbox and I can't even get my little shovel in that sandbox. What, what were the, just briefly, any thoughts on, on what you experienced? Well, you know, when I started my business, um, I just looked at getting each order as, a huge um, milestone. And in fact, um, I had a song. I made up a song every time I got an order. So it, it was about building it one order at a time and one client at a time. And each of those was a huge milestone for me. So I think I just looked at it that it's you chip away at it. You don't get it in one fell swoop. It's building it slowly but surely, just like the Aesop's fable. You know, it's it's... Slow and steady wins the race. There you go. I think we all agree on that. Thank you very much, Anne. Pleasure to have you on board. Now I'm going to turn this back around the table to David Favreau, who has waited patiently. I know he wants to tell us what he's drinking today because this is a segment of our show called What's in Your Cup Today. Just want to know a little bit about you personally, not your company, Kool-Aid or Champagne, but what do you like to drink right now or what are you drinking after the show? So, David Favreau, where, where are you what? calling from and what's in your cup? I am calling from Los Angeles, and I am drinking the cleanest, purest water that I can drink. Uh, nothing, nothing added to it. Um, I, this weekend, I rode my bike to the, basically the tallest vertical ascent, I think, in the continental U.S., where you start at about 900 feet in elevation and go all the way up to 7,900 feet. Uh, living clean is kind of the way I live my life, uh, but I keep it simple kind of like the way I run my business, lots of energy. Uh, I, I love to get down, down to business and, and sort out all the things that get in the way. Uh, I don't ever wake up in the morning where I need something to get me started. It's just a matter of having a zest for life. 
uh, being a, a father of six children, um, I never have dull time anyway. So uh, if I needed something artificial to get me going, I'd probably have other problems. <laughs> and I'll just leave it well, there. Well, well said. And we'll just, anybody who wants to go ahead and read between the lines, we're just going to leave it there. David, I want to say God bless you. I'm sure a lot of people have said that already and you didn't even sneeze. Pleasure to have you on and uh, very, very interesting. So thank you for that. I'm glad you you live a very pure, clean life. Goodness knows you need the energy. Let's turn to Ken Redler. Ken, where are you and what are you drinking? Uh, I'm actually in New York City and oh. uh, it's uh, it's 12... What twelve seventeen in the afternoon here? So exactly. Uh, and since it's afternoon, that means it's not too early for a delicious, uh, spicy glass of ninety proof bourbon. Uh, so I've got a, a nice, neat pour of Bullet Bourbon. It's got a high percentage of rye on its mash bill, which gives it a, uh, a sort of sharp, uh, eye-watering spiciness, which I like. Um, it has a nice perfume that kind of is suggestive of rye bread. You can, can really smell that rye coming out. Um, so among the many things I like to do is uh, I still code. And if any of you code, perhaps you'll be familiar with something mm-hmm. called the Bomber Peak. And uh, having a nice glass of bourbon helps you uh, uh, best achieve that. <laughs> now, all of that being said, uh, what's actually in my cup right now in front of me is actually some Tanzanian Peaberry fresh ground coffee that I muscled through this uh, AeroPress device, which makes a really nice, uh, smooth cup of coffee. So uh, uh, this does not mean I won't be m- moving on to the bourbon. Uh, but uh, probably not until after this call. Depends on how it goes. Well, it's going fine, and it'll be 1 o'clock, and we'll release you. I'm on Long Island, as I said, and I'm waving out the window. So, Ken, if you just look at the hand and the, the red hand behind the, the hand waving. Yep. There you go. Yeah, the curly Hi. red hair and great neck. That's me. Thank you very much, Ken. Uh, pleased to know you're going to wait just a little bit for that bourbon, but it sounded wonderful. Thank you very much. And let's turn to Anne. Anne, where are you calling from, and what are you drinking today? Yeah, I'm calling from Palo Alto, California, here in Silicon Valley. And um, I every morning I start my morning off with um, just kind of pedestrian drip coffee with my flavored hazelnut creamer. Um, and to me, I think I just look forward to the ritual of making my coffee and smelling it drip through the, the, the grinds and just um, the whole ritual, I think, of just having that predictability and having that set the tone for my day. So it's the one thing I can count on that's the same in a day that I have no idea what's going to be in front of me. So I enjoy that predictability. I call it my liquid comfort food. Ah, well, that sounds like a good thing. You've certainly been an, been through a lot uh, from bootstrapping your company and going out and, and leaving the profession behind and, and doing everything you've done, and I applaud you. So, guess what? I'm drinking cool, clear water in a cool, clear glass with a cool, clear straw. I usually have a pink straw, Ken, because I want the sunshine. You know, we've had so much rain here in New York. But uh, with the sun coming back after, I think it was called Tropical Storm Bonnie, she really didn't come in with a smash and a bash. She just kind of went Whimpered out of New York. We didn't get much rain at all yesterday. Nothing they predicted. And sadly, most of the Long Island Memorial Day parades were canceled because of the weather forecast. So I say to all you meteorologists who are wrong out there, tsk, tsk, wrong day to be wrong. So we are talking now with David Favreau, Ken Redler, and Kramer. By the way, Ken spells his last name R-E-D-L-E-R if you want to go look him up. And we're talking about e-commerce technology, the competitive edge for small and mid-sized businesses. You're listening to Business Network. 
Network Innovation with Game Changers. Shout out to the sponsor of this show. It's Jeannie Trin Rodriguez at SAP. And a shout out to Gail as well. I'm looking for you on Twitter at hashtag SAP Radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start the roundtable with the uh, still awake father of six, David Favreau at National Business Service, Fun- National Business Furniture. And we're going to take a look at some definitions on what e-commerce technology is all about. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Justin out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Business has never been more complex than in today's networked economy. To thrive, companies must adapt and innovate. They must harness the wealth of information now available to enable smarter decision-making. They must enable effective collaboration among employees and with customers and suppliers. They must optimally deploy enterprise resources. And they must make this simple. Join our experts as they discuss how your business leaders can drive innovation that positions your company for continued success. Business Network Innovation with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Network Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Business Network Innovation with Game Changers. Here we are, and I have to do a shout-out to Jeannie Trin Rodriguez, who is on Twitter at hashtag SAP Radio, following the conversation. Thank you for assembling such a terrific panel, Jeannie. Really appreciate it. And our topic today is e-commerce technology, competitive edge for small and mid-sized businesses. We're speaking with David Favreau at the National Business Furniture. We're speaking with Ken Redler, CTO and partner at CSUBS. And we're speaking with Ann Kramer, President and CEO of Ergo Work. Now, uh, we're going to take a look at the discussion topics that David Favreau sent first. I'm going to read a little, and then David will expand for two minutes, Then we'll invite Ken and Anne to chime in, and then we'll go around next to Ken's point. So, David says, e-commerce technology gives smaller selling companies greater exposure to larger buying companies that can then pool their purchases and achieve better spend control. Sounds great to me. David, why don't you tell us more? Well... As a smaller company, we were somewhat forced to get into the e-commerce technology arena by some of our larger companies. The National Business Furniture may not be a household name for people throughout the world that might be listening today, um, but we do mail a lot of catalogs throughout the country. But as business changed, um, some of our larger companies were leaving us because they were, their goal was to get rid of these smaller, NAT-like companies that may be getting in the way of their purchasing process. So by getting onto an e-commerce network, it gave us much greater exposure to these larger companies, uh, given that we had a smaller budget, even though we might have sent out lots of catalogs throughout the country. Um, mm-hmm. It gave us exposure to companies that never would have purchased from us before. Uh, and, and by getting on to, to a network that gave us huge exposure, we ended up having, uh, over the last 
I'll say, eight to ten years double-digit growth in our dollars every year, except for the most recent year, and certainly double or triple-digit growth in our order count. And so that's been really a real boon to our business and gives us greater exposure to companies that never would have thought to purchase from us to begin with. But when they see us through this e-commerce network, it's been a much better uh, program for us. Interesting. Was that a revelation to you, David, when, when you realized what was happening? Was that an aha moment, like, why didn't we do this sooner? What was the thought? You know, it wasn't an aha moment because it was really driven by a customer's change. Uh, most of these companies that we've worked with are more Fortune 500 type companies. And so if they, as they have sought to control their spend, uh, they want to try and exclude rogue purchases that might get in the way of their business running more uh, efficiently. Uh, and more cost-effectively. And so they basically said, hey, if you want to keep selling to our company, you've got to go through these hoops. And we looked into it and said we have nothing to lose at this point other than their business. Okay, thank you. Somebody's got some ice skating rink music there on the background. That was exciting. Thank you, David. Ken Redler, love to get your thoughts on what David started off with, please. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And as small as national business furniture may be, I, I'll bet that C-Subs is even smaller. Um, so in our case, uh, it, it was similar. We, we got into using business networks uh, by, and, and procurement systems basically because RFPs started arriving with that as a requirement. So when you're small, uh, you, know, you are on the, the receiving end when you're negotiating. And uh, it's like David said, it's a case of if you want this business, this is what you have to do. Um, so uh, while we may have looked at that with trepidation at the time, uh, over the years since, and it's been at least 10 years, maybe 12 years since we've been uh, moving on to business networks, um, our volume, our revenue actually now is probably over 75% through those business networks. So it's certainly been uh, worth doing. Uh, I can't say for sure whether um, the volume would have grown that much anyway, but certainly it's it's been a requirement. Interesting. A requirement's a good word. Okay. And let's turn to Ann Kramer. Ann, similar experience? What are your thoughts in, about your industry as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we've taken a little bit different tact in how we've gotten to where we are. Um, back, I, I would say, 15 years ago, what was happening is large uh, retailers, uh, big box retailers like the Staples and the Office Depots were kind of eating everyone's lunch because big companies wanted to single source their vendors. Um, so the way we adapted was to become a second-tier vendor to these big vendors and kind of go under, you know, their umbrella because, you know, they're just looking for ways to source unique products. So that was how we initially grew to the next level. And what we lost in margin, we, we gained in volume. Um, and then from there, it was figuring out how to um, directly compete in the marketplace. And, and I think that's... Uh, you know, where we got into online marketplaces and that whole area. Um, but I think just having uh, an e-commerce site and having Google AdWords and, and ways to market gave us greater visibility. Thank you very much, David. I'm going to toss it back to you. Anything you'd like to add to what Ken and Ann added to your point? No, I think it's just a matter of embracing this new technology and using it to your advantage as, a, as an organization because everybody can benefit from it. It's just a matter of doing it correctly and, and methodically, going back to my Aesop's fable. 
which is going to serve us well during the whole show, I have a feeling. Thank you very much. Uh, Ken Redler, I'm looking at your notes. Lots of interesting places we can go, but let's get right down to decision-making. You asked the question, and I'll read a little bit of your answer. How do you persuade the decision-maker, the actual person making the go, no-go decision, to get past their prejudicial risk aversion? Let me read one more. If we stipulate that the vendor can do the job equally well as any other vendor, then it eventually comes down to telling a story. Why don't you expand that for us, Ken? Very interesting point. Uh, well, actually, the, the most important thing in that first uh, sentence you just read was if we stipulate that the vendor can do the job equally well. So mm-hmm. the question is, how do you convey information to the potential buyer or the buyer that you can, in fact, do that job equally well? Uh, and this is where uh, being on board with the business network gives you that uh, the imprimatur of that large network. Um, and the fact that it, it places you shoulder to shoulder on lists with other larger, much larger companies, larger competitors, enables you to to move on to that story and not focus on somebody wondering why you're even there. Um, so we as a small company have more flexibility in the way we respond to RFPs. So for us, a lot of it is um, writing, this, this sounds kind of like going back to being an English major, but writing good essays when you mm. uh, do an RFP response. Uh, inevitably, these RFPs are full of very rigid types of questions, but then you get to the end and there will be a spot where it says something like, uh, you know, attach additional information here. Right. And that's where we tell the story. Um, we try to uh, make the point that we see our relationship with the buyer as a consultative one and not simply, uh, you know, sharpen your pencil. What is the number at the bottom of the spreadsheet? And we try to take that opportunity to, you know, to convey to them what our value is beyond simply the, the bottom line. Question, Ken, before I bring Ann into this, isn't everybody saying that storytelling is such a mantra in the business world today? Everybody knows just don't write a resume with five facts. Tell a story who you are, where you've been. Same thing for a business. Isn't almost everybody knowing by this point in the business cycle that they need to say we're consultative? They need to say we're not just price-driven. We're going to give you extraordinary service. We're going to be very thoughtful. We're going to be caring. We're going to have after-sales, hand-holding, whatever you need. So, is there a way to differentiate or is that baseline the entry point? Is that the key to the kingdom just to be able to say that well, Ken? Well, that that obviously is part of getting in the door. Um, and mm-hmm. like you said, it, everybody does say these things. But uh, when it comes down to it, a lot of the, uh, the process of trying to get customers and respond to RFPs ends up going through sort of old ossified channels. Um, and that approach, although it's paying lip service to the the storytelling angle, uh, ends up not necessarily uh, doing that in a good way. Um, and it ends up being a very traditional RFP. And this is where um, you know we focus specifically on that storytelling aspect and trying to explain the value as a a primary top line uh, feature of our RFP responses and our our quotes. Um, and again, competitors will do the same, but we will actually, uh, follow through. So not just talk the talk, walk the walk. I like that. Thank you very much. Appreciate your response. And join us. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think it's about how you can add value and, and bring something more to the table because as um, with all this technology, everything's become commoditized and, and there's price transparency. So how do you distinguish yourself in a crowded field? And it's, um, I think more and more of our customers are wanting to um, get references and speak to companies we've worked with. And 
it's again, it kind of comes down to really how you connect with people and how that resonates to show what value you can bring to the table. It's, it's connecting with people, ultimately. And business is about people, and we cannot forget that. We, we should, uh, name, Jeannie, we should name your series uh, Business Network People Innovation or Business People Network Innovation, something like that. we got to get that word people in there. Thank you. Let's go around the table to David Favreau. What do you think about Ken's comment and what Anne has added? Go ahead, David. Well, I definitely agree. Telling the story is critical uh, in, in, any, in building any relationship. And doing the business that, that Ann does or that we do, uh, we're sim- in similar industries, uh, we can sell you whatever you want us to sell you, but at the end of the day, you're going to be happy when we sell you what you need. And doing it more a consultative approach is going to be a better result for both parties because then they're going to feel like, hey, we had a great opportunity, we met it, and now that we've made the risk to, to buy from this company, we've experienced uh, the bliss that, that Ann talked about earlier, and so we can move forward in this relationship and build it stronger and better. Uh, and with the commodity environment we live in, uh, you have to differentiate yourself by telling the right story to make it applicable to the buyer. Thank you very much, David. Ken, I'm going to circle around to you. Any thoughts on what your co-panelists shared about your topic before I move on to something from Ann? Sure. Well, I, I- the one funny thing also, uh, you know, you're saying business is people, and that reminds me, of course, of the quote about Soylent Green. So maybe you could say business, you know, like Soylent Green is people. But putting that aside, um, I, I think you definitely want to – you can sort of smell when you're getting involved in a race to the bottom when you're trying to respond to an RFP or, or prepare a quote. Um, so hopefully that's – when you see that happening, it's sometimes not even worth getting involved in those types of uh, RFP responses. Uh, ultimately, it is people. And the people you end up talking to, if you can find the right contacts when you're trying to, uh, to become a seller and you've got a very large buyer, um, it's all about the people. If you can get the ear of mm-hmm. the decision makers, the business decision makers, that makes it much easier. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. And Anne, I'm looking at your notes here. You have a whole section called Use Technologies and Marketing Strategies to Compete Efficiently. Anne, I'm just going to rattle off a half a dozen of these. There were many more. And have you pick a couple you'd like to talk about briefly, and then we will get David's and Ken's POV and input on these. So you say use technologies and marketing strategies to compete efficiently as an SME, as a small player in a big player marketplace, or in that big player marketplace to which you aspire to be a player. Uh, number one, you mentioned repricer software. Number two, comparison shopping engines. Number three, shipping software and fulfillment. Number four, FBA fulfillment by Amazon. And I'll stop with the next one. Shipping companies have turned into tech companies, and this has passed through to the companies they serve. And what a couple of your favorites so that our listeners will know what you're, what you're thinking about. Well, I mean, I think ultimately first it gets around to how to leverage um, technology to grow your business. Um, and so one way that I, we've done that successfully is through um, online marketplaces and technology platforms. And so that's where what you just mentioned come into play. So once you're on these online marketplaces, how do you distinguish yourself and leverage that, that tool? Um, so that can be done through, um, you know, reprice or software. Because if you're on a platform, you know, all, oftentimes it, it really comes down to price and performance, and price certainly being number one. So a, a repricer software program automates so you can put a min and a max on your pricing um, spread. 
so um, you're not having to go in manually to change that. So that's an example of using technology. Um, you know, comparison shopping sites like Google Shopping, the Find, Price Grabber. Um, again, you you use the technology to put your products in through a product feed, so you're not hand entering all these. Um, uh, and then, you know, fulfillment, you know, instead of having to use your own warehouse to fulfill these orders and ship them, oftentimes you can send them to a consolidator, in this case, you know, maybe Amazon FBA fulfillment, and they're doing all the boxing and the, the, the shipping for you. They can get it out faster and more efficiently. So those are some examples. Thank you very much. David, let's turn around to you. Any thoughts on some of the examples and share? we got a lot more. And, Anne, I think after they com- they comment, we'll come back and cover a few more if that's okay. All right? Well, sure. I, I, I'd, like, okay. I'd like to play off Anne's last comment about using yes. uh, people's expertise, uh, fulfillment centers, et cetera. Um, working with partners' strengths is probably what's most critical. Uh, we've been in the dropship business for 40-plus years. Uh, it's only been the last few years that we've had our own distribution centers for our best-selling products. And it's about keeping costs under control so you can give the best value to your client. And by, by leveraging who works best in which category uh, is the best way to serve your customer. Thank you very much. Ken Redler, thoughts? Any favorites in Ann's list? Anything you want to add? Because we will cover a few more. Well, Ann mentioned leveraging technology. For us, that that is really the the key that stands out. Uh, we again, as as a very small business, um, for us, technology is uh, both sort of uh, the the proof of the pudding, and uh, it it puts us on the radar of these larger companies. So the fact that we're small and we have the ability to integrate with these networks and and check all the boxes uh, technologically um, actually becomes a competitive advantage. So it's not just um, oh, yes, you can do the same thing as these large uh, multi-billion dollar competitors. It's, wow, you can do the same thing as these large multi-billion dollar competitors. So um, for us, having our core competency laying with, with technology and leveraging that is, uh, is what's really given us a leg up. Thank you very much. And let me find a couple more here. Anne, in your list, you mentioned get the buy box, seller performance ratings and price, find a niche. Let's see. I think I have a repeat here, comparison shopping engines. Uh, Invest in mobile, video content, and set yourself apart with your value proposition. Anne, you want to pick another two or three? We'll go around again. It's good stuff. Sure. Um, so again, it's it's about leveraging, and I kind of refer to it as the scale of two cities. So those that can scale will have, and those that can't scale will have not. So it's about how can you leverage this. So um, when you're doing these online marketplaces, it's all about getting the buy boxes, being the first seller on the list. And again, it comes down to pri- price and performance. So you have to get the rating. So it's not strictly about price because if you don't get your product out quickly on time, if it's not packaged well and arrived clean, you're going to get a poor rating from that customer. And you live and die by your ratings, that and price performance. Um, And then with that said, on these marketplaces, it's fiercely competitive because everyone's out there too. You're not alone on this um, big platform. So the key would be finding a niche so that you're not competing. I mean, if everyone's looking for the same, you know, blender and everyone's got that blender, you know, it comes down to price. But if you can find a category of products that's unique, you're going to have less people vying for that business. 
Um, and one way you can do that is to uh, create your own products and sell them or OEM them. So find a product and you brand them or um, securing exclusive distribution rights, which we've been able to do on a couple of unique ergonomic keyboards. So we have no competition. So that would be um, uh, you know, a, a coup if you can find a way to do that. Um, let's see, invest in mobile. More and more people are purchasing on their mobile devices, whether it's an iPad or their phone. So it's important to have a responsive design so that people can transact business on their phone and have a, prop, you know, a checkout that's easy to use and that it's effective. Um, another way that we've enhanced our own website is to add video content. Um, it's making um, products more uh, easier to understand and see how they work in context to the environment. And what better way to do that with a video? And they're easy to um, import onto the site. I mean, it's all part of the platform of our e-commerce site. Um, you know, Shopify, for example, has all this built in. So it's, it's all about how to set yourself apart um, on, in a crowded field. Other ways would be free freight, quick delivery, um, having the ability to communicate with your customer if they have questions with an online chat feature. It's focusing on your customer experience and how to solve their problems. Thank you very much, Anne. Very insightful. David Fadro, I'm going to circle around to you again. Thoughts? You want to pick and choose a couple from Anne's list, or are you using any or all of these? We're using, I'll say we're using many of them. Branding, she mentioned, is, is critical in, in a commodity environment like furniture. Uh, most people sell the same type of product, and so you've got to do something that's going to set your brand apart. And coming up with your own private label brand that other people can't find elsewhere uh, helps because then it can complement the services you claim to, to provide. On the other hand, uh, if you're giving those services, then it's going to complement and strengthen your brand. Uh, in addition, video content's a big part of what we do uh, because you can't always be in a showroom if you're, if you're shopping virtually. And so that gives you the opportunity to be able to see how product's going to work, see if it's going to work for your environment. And to complement that, we've actually gone to a virtual showroom. So you can go through our our 1,000-square-foot, you know, 10,000-square-foot showroom with your mouse on your screen to be able to see furniture, have it touched, examined, measured, all those things you typically do if you had to leave the comforts of your office, but you can do it in the cloud. And that's, that's kind of where you can continue to build your brand and set yourself apart from your competition. Thank you. Ken Redler, thoughts? Anything you liked or didn't like or use or don't use for man's list? Anything you want to add? Well, there's a lot, lot to unpack there, but what Ann, when Ann mentioned price and performance, that, that really rung a bell for me. Um, so we are in a, my company's in a complex category. We do information management, uh, and it sounds like uh, Ann and David's companies are more product-oriented. So while there are transactions and, and items purchased, um, we have a very service-like product offering. Um, so for us, a lot of the the actual purchases that are made, um, much like the commodities that uh, commodity pricing Anne was talking about, um, the pricing is similar regardless of of how these are procured, whether it's through us or a competitor of ours. So the question is all on the performance side. Um, Anne mentioned that they they live and die by their ratings. So for us, we have these large Fortune 500 companies uh, who are our customers, and there are users within those companies, employees, and in a sense, their opinion of our service that forms our ratings. So that 
what we need to do is sell to the uh, sort of stakeholders and the procurement managers, but ultimately our customers are the end users. Um, so uh, we do things, for example, like uh, allow customers to run analytics that are very specific to our business area that go beyond uh, the typical metrics made available in a procurement system um, and let those customers do things like uh, make smarter uh, renewal decision purchases because a lot of the items we sell are renewable. So there are sort of these specific areas that are business specific. Uh, that, uh, that's where we offer that, uh, that extra value and take it beyond price. Thank you very much. Uh, Anne, I'm going to come back to you. Anything you want to add? Such a good list, Anne. Obviously, food for thought for all of our panelists. Anything you want to add or emphasize, Anne, before I move on? Uh, well, I think this is just one area of, of uh, scaling a business is through online marketplaces. It's not the only way. Um, but I, I do like um, David's uh, virtual showroom idea, so I may uh, give David a call after the show to talk about that. You meet the most interesting people here on Game Changers, Anne. I told you that on the prep call. That's, that's great to know. Uh, let's talk about uh, Ken Redler. I, I want to get away from the technology for a moment and talk a little more about the people side. I'm looking at your notes here, and there's a quote here. I don't believe you can do this. And let me just read this first paragraph, this first sentence, actually, and have you talk about it and then we'll have Ann and uh, David comment. You say, when a buyer and a seller transact directly, especially in a complex category, you end up with multiple teams, none of whom know or trust the capabilities of the other, with fundamental building blocks sometimes mistakenly presumed to be present or absent. How do you get past that? We don't know you, we don't trust you, therefore out the door, you know, don't let the door hit you on your way out to the parking lot, virtual or otherwise. Ken, talk to me. Well, before the rise of, of business networks, uh, every engagement was like that. So uh, there are still some that are like that. Um, but uh, when it was every single one and when we were smaller and, in fact, even half the size we are now where we then, uh, it becomes uh, almost an impossible hill to climb to get your arms around what the project's going to look like, what the capabilities and expectations of the buyer are, uh, how that matches up with our capabilities. Can we do things? Are there things that we could do by putting in a little more effort? Um, and there's no roadmap, there's no game plan that lets you understand what that interface, the surface area between our, the two parties looks like. So it's that, that complex piece, that, in, that interaction layer, that's where having a business network really comes into play uh, by regularizing the interaction between the two parties. So instead of us having to work uh, at great length with a uh, with a buyer to come up with a way of interacting. Instead, we already we use the the interface that we're already familiar with between us and the intermediary, the the business network, and so too does the buyer. So it actually regularizes that process and makes it much easier to get an integration going. Thank you very much. And thoughts on this? You agree or disagree? Well, yeah, I think it's like a family counselor. It's having an intermediary that can uh, negotiate between the two, in a sense. So it's uh, it's a way to um, communicate um, and have common ground. Um, so we have used that with, um, for instance, like the Ariba Discovery or the Ariba platform. Um, so an RFP will go out. So it's a way to have everyone um, channel the information using the same set of criteria. So it's a way to um, level set. And, um, and a forcing function. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I want to get David Favreau's thoughts on this. David, do you agree? I agree about using what's familiar to the buyer. Uh, people are sometimes slow to change, so if they can take the path of least resistance, that will help them complete their task of making a purchase. Uh, and we're talking product or, or services in Ken's situation. Uh, and, and so having a multi-channel approach as we do, that really helps us because even though people might be gravitating away from a, a paper catalog, it still drives huge traffic to our e-commerce site as well as to the, the network that we're talking about today uh, through, through Ariba. So uh, it's just doing what's familiar. They can see it in, a different, in different media and know that, okay, this is still all the same company that I'm used to buying from, and I'm comfortable with that, with that environment. Thank you very much. Ken, I'm going to go back to you. Anything you want to add to that comment from Well, Anne? I loved and Anne's just, comment where, yeah. where she said uh, it was like having a counselor. Um, so it, it's invaluable to have a higher authority to be able to appeal to when you're working with a customer, especially when you're trying to do things that maybe make that that buyer a little uncomfortable, uh, things that are pushing the edge technologically. Mm-hmm. Um, having that third party, that, uh, that counselor to appeal to, and having the counselor say, well, here's the way it's done, and here's the documentation, um, you know, it puts us in a position of instead of having to justify an approach, we can say, well, you know, this is how it is done. And they believe it because there it is. It's coming from that intermediary they already do business with. It's a mediator. Thank- yes. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Inter and intra and otherwise. I want to get one more point in here very quickly from Ken Redler's notes because we're in about a minute and a half. We're going to start our crystal ball predictions round. I want to make sure you each get a full minute for telling us what's coming down the pike and when in this business of SMEs being able to compete using business networks. Ken, very interesting here. We opened with a parable, an Aesop's fable, or Aesop's fable from David Favreau about the tortoise and the hare. And I'm looking at your notes here and you've got a parable here. You're talking about, you say, when I think of certain big companies, some perhaps clients or potential clients, I'm reminded of the frog and the scorpion parable. Uh, They are acting against their own best interests because it's their nature. They're intractable. They're inflexible. So tell me just quickly, tell us, Ken, please, how does this relate to small businesses and RFPs? Just what's your word to the wise here? Well, uh, this is something we experience every day as a small company. So we are uh, you know, the big companies are the scorpions and, and we are the frogs and we have to ride on that frog's back across the river. And somehow, even knowing that we're going to get stung, we have to make it cross. We have to find a way to, to make that engagement work. Um, so this kind of also goes back to the other quote where we say we, we don't take a trip. The trip takes us. It, it's all about flexibility and understanding that we're dealing with a scorpion. And there are uh, many examples I could throw, throw in on a, on a longer show. Uh, the, the sort of crazy... Uh, self-defeating, um, illogical types of hoops that large buyers make us jump through. Uh, so it's all about having that understanding going in um, and being flexible. It's the flexibility that counts. And that's, again, one of the things where when you're small, you can actually play that to your advantage. A larger company not having that flexibility, will, you know, it'll sort of be like two scorpions stinging each other going across the river. Ooh, all right. I just don't want to go on the river anymore after hearing that. 
I'm not going in any rivers bourbon. this summer. And I think you agree with me. I heard it go, ooh, maybe I didn't. Uh, David Favreau, I'm going to circle around to you. It's time for our crystal ball predictions round. We're actually almost a little bit late, but that was worth it, Ken. David Favreau, 60 seconds. I love the year 2020. Tell me how far in the future you will like to tell us something will change in terms of e-commerce, technology, competitive edge for small to mid-sized businesses. David, prediction, 60 seconds, go. For 2020, uh, I think that you're going to continue to see more and more commerce leave traditional media and go towards a, a cloud-based uh, transaction for simply ease because the millennials want more time for themselves. And as they continue to invade the workplace in a positive way, business climates will continue to change. Oh, that M effect, the millennials. Thank you for bringing that in. We, I don't think we heard the M word all, all during the show, and I'm usually the one to bring it up. So thank you very much, the millennial effect. Appreciate that. Are you, by the way, David? Nah, you can't be with six kids, right? You're right. I can't be. <laughs> I was doing the math in my head. It's like, no, Bonnie, you shouldn't have said that. I have okay. Some. <laughs> I was going to ask if you have some. What, what's the age range of millennials today? I know it goes up to 30, 32, but what's the low range, the low end? Does anybody know? No, I don't know offhand. I'm, I'm going to look it up, millennials. Okay. In the meantime, Mr. Ken Radler, it's time for you to talk to us. Uh, what's your prediction, please? Well, uh, I. I think the probably the one that stands out to me is that uh, these networks, these business networks, are going to end up desperately trying to put themselves in a position of expressing algorithmic power over the market. Um, there's going to be an upheaval, and all of the intermediaries, and of course there are many, um, they want to be the one that... Uh, gets in the position of being the market maker. And you can think of companies like Google, of course, how they express their power uh, and how an algorithmic change in the way their service works can you know, be the, the birth and death of other companies. Um, but I'm thinking about something as simple as uh, how, uh, like with the arrival of fractional stock market price quotes, how that changed the market and uh, you know, made markets like NASDAQ become more relevant um, with sort of the market forces eventually will end up build, uh, bending the, the intermediaries, the business networks themselves, to the network force. And they will eventually, um, to the market force, that is, and they will eventually uh, probably start to, to consolidate, I would imagine, um, and end up trying to insert themselves uh, as kingmakers, as algorithmic kingmakers between buyers and sellers, as opposed to simply conduits. They want to create value or be value more than simply a conduit. Thank you very much. Very interesting point of view. And Ann Kramer, I saved one minute exactly for you for predictions. And by the way, by the way, millennials, I looked it up, uh, Gen Y, the silent generation, all kinds of names, no precise dates for where beginning and end, but most research researchers say it's from the early 1980s to around 2000. So for the record, my granddaughter, who is now 17, I guess, is a millennial. My 15-year-old granddaughter is a millennial. That's kind of scary. I don't know. Anyway, we're, we're on the edge there somewhere. So, Anne, go ahead. Predictions. Yeah, so I, I would call it just in time. <clears throat> in fact, my son, who's born in 1999, is a millennial, and he was born just in time. Um, as yep. time becomes the scarcest resource of all, um, consumers are going to look to get their products faster and more conveniently. So I think businesses are going to have to find ways to save 
consumers' time and money. And I think what this means is that businesses are going to have to figure out how to be faster, localized, and less expensive, and to deliver products on technology platforms like Uber and online marketplaces. There'll be less brick and mortar and more demand for services and products that can be delivered just in time. Thank you very much. It's getting very personalized again, isn't it? So our topic was Fisher Cut Bait. We say fish, e-commerce technology for the competitive edge for SMEs. Thank you so much, David Favreau from National Business Furniture. See, I can say it right. Thank you, Ken Redler at C-Subs. Pleasure to meet you, CTO, and Kramer, President and CEO of Ergo Works. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. And a shout-out to, uh, let's see, we have Gail DeCucu, who is uh, a G-A-L-E-D-B. She is tweeting, talking about what we've said on the show, which is terrific. Thank you, Gail. And Jeannie Trin Rodriguez as well, who sponsors the series. And here's my call to action. I don't care whether you get it from a big supplier or a little supplier. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Let's see, 11 a.m. We have five shows a week now. 11 a.m. Coffee Break with Game Changers right here on the Business Channel. You don't want to miss that one. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Thanks again for tuning in to Business Network Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join hosts Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.